1: regular listeners know that I'm a big fan of mountain biking at night and having a reliable bright light is crucial. Glowworm is a mountain bike light brand founded almost a decade ago by two mountain bikers in New Zealand and today the company offers some of the most customizable highest quality bike lights on the market. Glowworm's complete line of lights start at 1200 lumens and range up to a blinding 3400 lumens all at reasonable prices. There are a few things Glowworm does differently that makes their lights unique and highly customizable. The optics can be swapped at home depending on the types of trails you ride, and their lights use standard GoPro style and quarter turn mounts. Many of the lights work with a bar mounted remote, which can be used to control one or more lights at once. Right now, Glowworm is offering 20% off all light systems on their website with the coupon code SINGLETRACKS19 go to glowwormlights.co.nz that's g l o w w o r m l i t e s.co.nz or click the link in the show notes to take advantage of this offer hey everybody welcome to the single tracks podcast My name is Jeff, and today Matt and Jero and I are going to be talking about some trends in the mountain bike industry and a little show that we like to call What's Grinding Our Gears and Stoking Our Spokes. And this is a segment that we used to do semi-regularly on the podcast, but it's been probably at least a couple of years since we've done it. But yeah, our listeners seem to enjoy it, and we haven't talked about a lot of this stuff in a while, so... Let's just kick it off, Jero, and ask you, what's something that's grinding your gears right now about mountain biking?
2: Let's see. I would start off with, I just, I recently did an analysis, um, uh, looked at a bunch of different pro teams, and the lack of diversity on professional teams between downhill and cross-country and enduro is kind of amazing. And I think, you know, looking at all of them, at most they would have one one female rider out of three to five riders and usually no juniors you know so it seems like a pretty obvious place to start in terms of diversifying the sport and supporting uh women riding and racing yeah you know having that that representation it's just not there's not much of it at the moment there's a little bit but not much
1: why do you think that is? I mean, do you think it's limited budgets, or are they trying to reflect sort of the current demographics rather than future demographics, or what? What do you think could be driving that?
2: I could see the maybe the marketing departments who are getting to put certain amounts of money into that stuff, making the argument that there's more men who mountain bike, so that's who we want to be represented on our team, mm-hmm. things like that. But I mean, those arguments don't drive any kind of progress or change like True. if we want things to change we have to change it so yeah i don't know what else is driving it though that's a really good question i'd yeah do you have any idea
1: <laughs> it's interesting that juniors are underrepresented too and i mean maybe it's it's just as far as that's concerned that brands want to be associated with the riders at the top level of the sport and they get I guess a lot more out of sponsoring a pro rider in terms of like product development and, you know, being on sort of a bigger stage, but yeah, it doesn't seem very forward thinking at least in both of those terms, right. In terms of future diversity of the sport and also growing, getting younger people involved and and keeping them involved.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, if they've got five, mid 20 to mid 30 dudes on the team seems like they could probably trade out one or two of them and support some u23 riders or yeah some more women maybe make it a half and half game
0: do you think it's a different representation though and of mountain biking as a whole say you have a like rocky mountains team where they have three male riders remy govin jesse melamed there's somebody i'm forgetting and then they have they other Canadian dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to where 75% of the team is made up of male 25 is female mountain biking as a whole doesn't have, you know, it's, there are more males than there are females. So do you think it's the numbers are skewed during racing or is that just kind of, we're picking from the overall population in the sport of mountain biking as a whole and making a race team based on that?
2: I mean it seems like there's enough women especially I mean take the EWS for example there's enough women there who are not sponsored who could be on those teams um who could be representing and and sort of be examples for women and young girls in the sport and they're not getting the sponsorships I mean the the percentage of pro male riders who are sponsored versus pro female riders is certainly not equal yeah, not by any means. Yeah, I don't know if that really gets at what you're asking. But
1: seems like there is a business case to be made for sort of going into these groups where the competition is not quite as fierce. So you look at a brand like Pivot. I don't know. I haven't looked at their team in a while, but you know, for years it seemed like they were sponsoring more women than men, and because of that, they're able to claim a lot more like podiums and top overall finishes uh, than if they had use their budget to, you know, just sponsor male riders where there are just so many more and the competition is just much more heated and same with the under 23, you know, I mean, if, if nobody's there, seems like an opportunity for certain brands to come in and, and really capitalize on that.
2: Yeah. That's a good point.
1: Yeah. Pivot's still pretty, they have a lot of female, uh, I mean, mostly XC
0: athletes, but they're definitely heavy on the female side but i mean Drew it sounds like you yeah like you said as far as women getting sponsorship like it seems like brands see more value in sponsoring men than women
1: yeah yeah one of the things that i found interesting in our interview with uh Darren from Crankworks was uh he was he was saying how you know in his opinion if you took you know two kids you know say five to eight year old kids and you gave them both mountain bikes and you know put them in gymnastics classes and got them both to like ride bikes that they could do a lot of the same tricks and things you know when it comes to like free ride and slope style and and his kind of hope and his idea was that 10 years from now we're going to see sort of similar levels of competition in slope style. And I thought that was really interesting. That's really different from all the other disciplines that I can think of where, you know, men tend to dominate the results. Um, You know, I mean, obviously they're not racing head to head, but, but slope style seems to be like the one discipline where, you know, you could have that where like women and men would compete at kind of the same level if there was just this like encouragement and this development uh, early on, which... Yeah, never thought about that before.
2: Well, that we kind of already have that in enduro. I mean, the men and women compete on the exact same courses on the same bikes. I mean, there's really no difference at all, uh, other than the fact that they're not sponsored, uh, often at the same level, and, not, and certainly not paid at the same level.
1: Yeah. So, Matt, let's talk a little bit about mountain bike access stuff. What's something that's grinding your gears?
0: Oh, man. Yeah, it's there there's been a few topics uh of lately. I mean one the big change is just that the Secretary of Interior green-lighted e-bike access in national parks on BLM land. And that as a whole is not what grinds my gears.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. That seems that seems like kind of okay news if if you're an e-biker, it's great news. Yeah. For everybody else it's just kind of it's just news.
0: Right. The part that could be tricky is, so when I was working
1: on a story and
0: uh, talking to Dave Weens about this, is that obviously lumping all three classes of e-bikes in with a general categorization, like they did with the change, saying that you're not just adding class one e-bikes, but you're saying class one through three is okay to access any trails of bicycle. And so IMBA's sort of stance for this has always been, you know, we're okay with class one. And their reasoning is that, Adding class one, making it distinct from the other two classes, and then also making class one distinct from non-pedal assist mountain bikes is that once they're all lumped in together, say there's an instance where access for bicycles needs to be revoked, then all of them are now revoked rather than just the e-bikes because they're all classified as a bicycle. And that's something I had never thought of until all this sort of rolled about. And yeah, I mean, now it is, it's like the... Secretary of Interior is like, okay, you guys have 30 days to review this and make the necessary changes. And this is just how it's going to be. So, yeah, it, it's a good thing for some. But in the long term, I don't know that it's like the best move for how things would play out for bicycle access in, in the long term.
1: Yeah, well, it seems to have coincided with a real uptick in anti mountain bike sentiment um, that we've been seeing from hunting groups. I know that was one of the things you reported on, Matt. and. Uh, hiking groups as well seems like our news feed every day is filled with stories I mean New York Times had a story about it there seems to be a lot of blowback against mountain bikers in general and a lot of people were saying this when the e-bike debate uh, was first getting started a few years ago that that e-bikes could jeopardize sort of regular mountain bike access and yeah, I mean, admittedly that was something that I thought, yeah, that probably won't happen. People are smart enough to kind of distinguish between the two, but it doesn't seem like the anti-bike establishment. I mean, th- I think they do understand the difference. They're just using it as an opportunity to sort of reduce mountain bike access or at least, you know, push back against it in some places, but definitely seems like this this e-bike sort of decree has poked a hornet's nest and really gotten some people fired up.
0: Yeah. And and it's just, uh, that's what happens. I think when you have somebody greater than your local establishment making these policies for you, it's not a case by case basis. It's, you know, somebody at at a federal level saying, okay, now it's okay for everybody to have this who doesn't really understand the nuances of classification and bicycle access. Like I seriously doubt that (laughs) David Bernhardt really, Understands the different, yeah, those nuances and what bicycle access means or has meant over time.
1: Yeah, it was interesting when all the articles, you know, when that Secretary of the Interior letter came out, all the major news establishments kind of honed in on, you know, oh, national parks are going to allow these electric bikes everywhere. And I don't think most of them, none of them really address the fact that very few off-road opportunities for riding exist in national parks to begin with. So this isn't like, you know, oh, now you can you can ride your e-bike all over Yosemite or wherever. I mean, <laughs> most of those places, there weren't bike trails to begin with, and so it really is a moot point. But where it does affect trails more is uh, BLM land, where there are a lot of trails. And so you're talking about places like Moab, a lot of places out west where uh, there are off-road trails that are open to bikes and you know even Moab isn't a great example because a lot of that stuff's already open to vehicles I mean I think you can you can drive a jeep on slick rock right so (laughs) yeah exactly it's kind of hard to tell like where like how big a deal is this really but um just just seeing like the word national park next to like you know electric vehicle I think got people pretty pretty worried and scared and upset
0: Yeah, I mean it's it kind of fits right in with making national parks more accessible for everybody. And I think that in itself is a slippery slope. Like these are great monumental places, but you know, I don't know if you guys have ever sat in traffic trying to get into a national park. Like it's it can work the other way sometimes too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a lot of them have like shuttles where you like park your car and then you like ride a bus to get in and yeah crazy well at least one bit of good news I'm pretty stoked about a lot of the new trail openings that we're seeing all over the country and you know this is something that I started tracking I guess maybe it was like beginning of the summer maybe mid-summer just every month like making a list of the new trail openings that we hear about and there are a lot of them they're happening all over the place it's actually interesting seems like a lot of these trail projects are like getting finished up toward the end of the summer you know it takes a lot of time to to get them open and ready for riding but yeah it just seems like every day we're hearing about new trails and the cool thing is a lot of these are like bike specific trails and for example there's the one in Colorado that you rode right Matt the it's a downhill only bike specific trail What's the name of that one again? The Sluice. The Sluice. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they
0: could have worked a little bit harder in the name, but that's all right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but we're seeing a lot of trails like that where, you know, it's mountain bikers that are getting these projects done and they're, you know, they're building these trails that are more challenging too. That Take advantage of what bikes can do, you know. In the old days, we were stuck with like old hiking trails or, you Um, multi-use trails but these are opportunities for people to to go fast and practice their enduro or downhill or whatever it is they're trying to do and yeah it's just cool to see oh that's great
2: do you have a sense is there a kind of a trend that they're more park or like longer single trails or what's the i guess is it more of an more networks being built or more single trails on their own
1: Seems to be a lot of both, um, just depends okay. what part of the country you're in. Yeah, out west where there are a lot of trails, it seems like we're getting these more like specialized trails where they're, you know, one way or downhill specific or whatever. Whereas then we're also seeing trails being built a lot of places like the Midwest where there just aren't opportunities. I mean, so many of these, what I've read is the people who spearheaded these projects just said, you know what, like I'm tired of driving 45 minutes to go ride a trail. Like we can build one here. We've got a park and, you know, they're able to get the approvals and everything. And so they'll build like a two mile loop or whatever. And that's just kind of the start of it. And, you know, they, they plan to add on to them. The other thing that we're seeing a ton of is these a few years ago it would have been pump tracks everybody was adding pump tracks or getting those built now we're seeing a lot of skills courses or skills parks and again these don't take up a lot of space but they're great for getting new riders into the sport i know my kids that's what they'd rather do like we go to a trail they don't want to don't want to go on like a five mile trail ride or ride some single track loop like they just want to mess around in the skills area and like do little ramps and skinnies and practice riding over rocks and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's fun. So it's cool to see that option popping up.
0: Yeah, it's definitely growing. And yeah, even that, we wrote that up a few months ago, I think it was like Cedar, I think it was Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where they built a trail network into a capped landfill, which is pretty cool. It definitely does not grind my gears. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of yeah. flowing
1: between the two here. Yes. Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> good and the bad. Yeah. But yeah. It seems like a really, really cool use of space and yeah, again, bringing mountain bike trails to somewhere you wouldn't generally think of them being at.
1: Yeah. Well, that's funny. It's funny you say that too, though. Like I remember I wrote an article, man, it must've been 10 years ago about how it seems like a lot of mountain bike trails are in really crappy locations like landfills or like sewer lines or you know especially here in the southeast like that land is generally available right like you have a, a sewer line and people are like fine you can build a trail there if you want to but yeah that always frustrated me that it felt <laughs> like we kind of got relegated to like whatever land was left over and nobody else wanted to use but yeah it's cool it's cool to have options yeah for sure a bunch of the places
2: that i've been visiting this summer. Like the Czech Republic and Slovenia, different spots, especially in Central Europe, there's a lot of focus on building new trails, and the governments are putting money into the trails. Like the the federal government's putting tourism dollars into it, and uh, it's great. Like they they have full time people building trails. Wow! In the Czech Republic, something I noticed, and I've seen this a couple other places, when they have federal dollars to build trail, they It seems like they kind of have to start with flow trails, like everything has to start out green to maybe blue. Right. And uh, I'm interested to see if that's going to end up with a bunch of people building like pirate trails
1: or unsanctioned trails because they just get bored. interested to see where that goes. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, I guess, that to get approval for these things, you have to show that it's going to be available to the widest number of people. So you can
2: exactly. say, you yep. know,
1: we're not just building this for like us and our buddies. This is for like families and kids and anybody can use this. Uh, but you're right. That does tend to force people to, you know, look for more challenging stuff and, and to build it on their own. I mean, it doesn't force them, right? <laughs> like we're just being, being lazy and not waiting because like, like I said, these these more advanced trails seem to be popping up in areas where they already have a ton of blue and green trails. Um, And so it is kind of like you build that first and then a few years later, you can go back in and build more challenging stuff.
0: Yeah,
2: for sure. That stuff's all hopefully on its way.
0: Yeah, it has been, I've noticed that here too, definitely in Colorado and not just here, but A lot of the destinations I've gone to over the past year, Mm -hmm. whether it's here, Idaho or Whistler is that most of the new trails that are being built are flow trails and not even necessarily like flow trails with jumps, but just switchback, 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 like flowy berms. And like you said, Joe, like, it's, I know a lot of the grant writing that takes place here too. you've got to prove that it's going to be able to be used for a wide amount of people. Sure. And some of those places, you know, they're. Say for example, if they're building them in Whistler, they've had these insanely technical downhill trails for years, and now it's kind of accommodating newer riders. But now it's like, hey, we we've, we've been riding the same stuff for years. Like, when do we get a new trail?
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, it seems like flow trails too. They're they're generally quicker to build um, because you know you're going to use a machine and you just kind of kind of go through and bulldoze it. Whereas making a natural more technical trail definitely takes a lot more work and finesse and volunteers. Yeah. Volunteers. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I mean, flow trails hiring out like a professional company to come in and build a trail. It's quicker, but it's also more expensive, but people clubs seem to be making this trade off either because they don't have the volunteers available or they just know people, people got more money than they have time. And I don't know. That, that does seem to be what gets built. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about mountain bike gear. What's grinding your gears about mountain bike components right now, Drew? I think my comments
2: just a bit curmudgeon, but I would say (laughs) proprietary standards and bike parts in general, like anything that's only going to work on one drivetrain or on one bike is just frustrating. Like I'm, I'm not an engineer and I can understand that, you know, sometimes in their job they need different, you know, they think need things to work differently, but Mm -hmm. like making, you know, continuing to make drivetrains that only work with, you know, like this cassette only works with this chain or this shifter and, you know, just the, the kind of like silent argument between, SRAM and Shimano and all the different stuff with micro spline and different drivers is like, it's obnoxious. Like, yep. I, I can only imagine if you run a wheel company, it's got to be just be a complete headache <laughs> to have all of those standards and be able to keep up with them and be able to make them work. And, and you also are trying to like deal with not only hub standard, like not only the standards of the frames, but also the standards of the drivetrain and then you want to do something unique and interesting as well. And it's just like, I don't know, it seems like we could standardize things a little bit yeah, and just make parts work together and make life a little easier, maybe less expensive.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was, that's the thing that is bothering me right now too, is the driver cassette drivers specifically. And it's like, we used to have a standard, right? Like there was a standard and all of, you know, you could buy a Shimano or a SRAM or, any of the other brands and your cassette's going to work with your wheels. But I guess SRAM kind of blew that up with the XD a few years ago. And, and now Shimano has got a different new standard and yeah, that's, it's causing me some headaches trying to build up my bike and also just testing too. You know, I mean, we get products in for review and it's like, Oh man, I don't have a wheel set that'll work with. And so now I got to keep like, you know, three different wheel sets around, to test different drivetrain stuff that comes in center lock versus six bolt or six bolt
2: yeah there's always something exactly right now i'm testing a set of wheels with so i need to be able to use them for a variety of reasons on a sram drivetrain and a new xtr shimano xtr drivetrain Hmm. and so i'm using the sunrace cassette which works like okay with both but there's it's like it goes shifts pretty regularly and you have to like, you have to mess with it like pretty regularly. <laughs> and it's, it's not ideal. I was really hopeful that it was going to be like, you know, the cool middle ground that would really work. And it's, it's really affordable. It's a little bit heavy, but it seemed like it was going to work well and it works, but long-term I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to stick with it.
1: Yeah. And all this stuff, it I mean, it's engineered so much that, I mean, you really can't like if you don't run the right chain with the cassette and with the crank that it's just not going to work as well. You're not going to get all the performance benefits out of it. And I mean, it must be hard as a product designer because yeah, you do want to innovate and you're like, oh man, we can make this so much better, but we're going to have to change this thing that we've been doing forever. And it's going to, it's going to result in a new standard. Um, I, I, at least I like to believe that it's not just, like a marketing decision like hey if we change this we can or a sales decision i should say you know if we change this we can sell a whole bunch more because everybody's gonna have to you know upgrade their wheels too yeah i hope it's not that i I think it's just it's complicated because there are all kinds of patents and and how do you coordinate you know shram and shimano obviously aren't going to work together they're competitors and so for them to remain innovative and competing with each other they need to kind of do their own thing and that's (laughs) that's <laughs> yeah there are some negative side effects to that for sure
2: although there there was a point where some of their stuff was cross-compatible
1: yeah but yeah i feel like that was just you know shimano kind of established it and then SRAM was the newcomer and nobody's gonna switch to a newcomer if their stuff is different and doesn't work with the existing stuff and so you know that's just what they had to. that's what ha- shram had to do to get started but then as soon as they were big enough they're like we're gonna do our own stuff makes sense but yeah still very frustrating but speaking of stuff that's not frustrating in terms of gear i mean we are we are complaining about first world problems here and and everything about mountain bikes the gear and everything is just so much better than it was even last year and certainly than 10 years ago um, what are some of the things you guys are stoked about right now i think to lead some of
0: you guys' points is definitely Tires. I've been through a number of tires this year, just testing different ones. I think I've only had one puncture. Whoa! Nice. Yeah, I can only count one, and that was a pretty light trail tire towards the end of its life on a pretty rough trail.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I've had great luck with tires this year, and I used to I used to go through a lot of tires and have a lot of punctures. So that is really really cool.
1: Yeah. Nice. It's great.
2: Yeah, I don't think I've had a, I don't think I've had a puncture this year, actually. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, between tire inserts and heavy downhill casing tires in the back, I just don't feel like I have to worry about it so much anymore.
1: Yeah. Is that a trade-off? I mean, obviously that's a trade-off you've been willing to make is heavier tire that's going to be more durable. Do you think other riders are starting to do the same thing or is that, is that just you?
2: No, I I feel like I jumped on the bandwagon on that one. People were like, Man, <laughs> we don't want to wait for you. Like, just get some heavier tires and then I was like, All right, I'll quit being a cross country rider and get some downhill tires and <laughs> it's totally worth it. Like the the weight penalty, I mean, yeah, it costs costs some energy on the way up, but it's definitely worth it to not be changing a flat, especially with heart, how difficult it is to get a tire on and off. Like Yeah, seriously. I don't want to do that in the woods. It's no
1: fun. Yeah, it's always been a real frustration for me. And man, probably at least five years ago, I was I was threatening to put a pool noodle in my tire because I was just so tired of, of having to deal with air. And yeah, now look at it. There's actual pool noodles you can put in your tire and <laughs> not have to worry about that stuff as much anymore. Um, yeah, I'm building up this bike and um, this orange hardtail and... I put the new, uh, E-line tires on it and, uh, with a set of Reynolds carbon wheels. And the whole thing was just, it was so easy and so smooth. Um, just compared to years past, like I used a pump to literally just pump them up like didn't need an air compressor or anything to set them up tubeless went on, didn't need a tire lever. I mean, it's crazy how easy tires are now compared to, several years ago so I'm I'm definitely stoked about mountain bike tires and wheels and also dropper posts so I feel like those are getting a lot better than they were a few years ago more reliable you know I used to have problems with the post getting stuck down or up you know on the trail and not knowing if it was going to work and now they're super reliable and not only that like they're way easier to install than they used to be I mean other than internal routing which that too is getting a little better some bikes are are figuring that out but but yeah just i have this pro koriak uh dropper post that i installed recently and it was i mean it took like 10 minutes or something to get it all installed and cables cut and everything mounted up it's just yeah way easier than it used to be yeah that's great
2: yeah, I think I feel like since I went away from dropper posts with hydraulic levers.
1: Of which there's only one, right? <laughs> they've worked
2: a lot better. That one was mostly problems. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I have had very few problems with them as well. And the new some of the new ones, like the one from one up components, you can adjust the amount of travel it has so you can like get the longest one possible, stuff it all the way in your frame and then you know, whatever amount you need to chop off the travel to make it work, you can, you can take it down a bit. Yeah. It's, it's great. Mix makes it so that, you know, really anybody, especially
1: riders with shorter legs can have a lot more drop that way. It's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And frame manufacturers seem to be on board with that too, or, or trying to accommodate that by having the lower seat mass on across all the sizes so that people aren't limited in the amount of travel they have. I know for me now, like if I get on a bike that's got like 125 millimeter drop, it seems like way too little. It's like, whoa, was this thing even dropped down? You know, I mean, just gotten used to, yeah, gotten used to at least 150 and now I'm looking (laughs) at 170s and I mean, I'm a tall guy, so I could probably fit a 200 on my bikes. So yeah, the more the better in my opinion. So, Matt, one of the things that you got to do this summer that looked really awesome was stage racing. Is that something that you feel like stoking your spokes? Are you going to be looking to do that again in 2020? Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, it's this weird hybrid sort of between, at least, so I did BC Bike Race, and that was, if you don't know by now, because I've been talking about it every other day for the past six months, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it was good, like, to find a format that... Sort of fit between cross country and enduro. And a lot of it, and this is talking to people who have done Pisgah stage race and other stage races too, that there's a general idea that you're going out as sort of this empty or mountain bike vacation. and You're not just traveling to go insane on this race and break yourself and your bike and your body parts and things like that. It's more of an experiential form of racing, I feel like, than if you were to do just a pure enduro or pure cross country race where the trails are really a heavy part of the race itself. For me, pure cross-country racing is not going to be technical enough. And a lot of the enduro racing, at least around the Rockies, and I know around Canada, are just, uh, I, yeah, they're pretty crazy. So <laughs> it's, it was good to find, like, a happy medium. So I think next year I'm going to try one out in Moab. And, yeah, that would be a blast. Dude, what's that one called? In Moab, it's called uh, Moab Rocks. It's a three-day stage race. Yeah, it's just like doing the porcupine rim, except you pedal to the top instead of
1: shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> Red. Are most of the people that do these stage races there to actually race? Or, or do you think people are using it as just kind of, like you said, an, an experience to ride new trails and meet people and that kind of thing?
0: There's definitely a competitive aspect to it. But I don't think it's as widespread as... I've done a lot of local Enduros, a lot of local cross-country races. And when you go to those, you're there to race. You're there to be competitive. You know, even if you know you're not going to win, it's like you want to get into as highest place as possible. And with stage racing, it's I feel like it's more a matter of just finishing for a lot of people because if you're taking on a multi-day race of any format, it's just getting to the end The last day and the finish line is uh, a pretty big feat in itself. So I do think that you know maybe the top 10, 20% are there to be really competitive. A lot of other people are there to push themselves, but probably not in the same vein as who's making up a local race.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Jero, you've done a number of these races too, or or you've done multi-day racing. Is that different from stage racing?
2: No, it's just what folks typically call... uh, an enduro stage race call it a multi-day
1: multi-day racing instead right because enduro is like an enduro race is a stage race essentially right you have stages and pretty much yeah yeah. so it's like a (laughs) stage race of stage races
2: Yep, totally i've done several cross-country stage races as well um actually the first time i was in italy was for a cross-country stage race and I had a really similar experience to what Matt's talking about where like a good portion of people were there to have fun and to finish the thing. And it was like more about camaraderie and eating a lot of food than than winning anything. You know, it was like, how much can I fuel up for tomorrow? And, you know, like good jokes carry on through the whole thing. And it's just it's really fun. And then there's like, I don't know. Depends on the race size. Ten people who are like super seriously racing and going (laughs) to bed early, and are trying to, yeah, stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's so there's also a survival element in there that Matt kind of brought up. That like getting to the end can be
1: pretty, pretty much a win for some folks. So it's a lot of fun. Interesting. It looks like a lot of fun. I I definitely want to try one of those at some point. Maybe the Trans Cascadia. That looks like a really fun one in a really picturesque place for sure. Also very food focused. Yes. I like that.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Do you think stage racing is growing? I don't know that it's necessarily growing. I don't think it's slowing down, but I mean, the same ones are always selling out.
2: Yeah, that's, I don't know. That's a good question. I would say there's more enduro multi-day races happening here anyway than there yeah. Than there was previously, but like cross country stage races are still really popular, and they're still, from what I can tell, just as much of a vacation as they are a race. Mm-hmm. And that, like you're saying, the same ones are still happening. There's,
1: you know, they're still selling out like immediately, and people are are stoked to go to them. So. Yeah, none of them are really big. I mean, outside of BC bike race, but yeah, most of them have a couple hundred competitors or less, just because logistics, I'm sure get tricky when you have that many people staying together and eating together and riding together for sure. So yeah, they, they do tend to be smaller and it takes a lot of work to put them on. You know, we talked to, um, the organizers of the PISGA stage race and you know, it's, it's a big job. It takes a big team to put that on and yeah, but it would be great to see more of them. Cause like you guys said, they sell out a lot. And the one thing that does seem to be exploding is these like bike packing races that seems like every state now has got one, you know, you got the Arizona trail and there's the trans North Georgia and just everybody is trying to like capitalize on that. And that's an interesting format as well because a lot of times there's like no entry fee or it's super low and they're just like more informal sort of like grassroots type races Either you guys have any interest in doing something like that at some point? Mm. (laughs) Too much of a suffer fest? I mean, stage racing sounds way more fun to me, personally. Can I take like a month off, Jeff, to do one of these races?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I definitely have interest in doing it, but the the, like family and work uh, logistics of it are a little bit tricky. I think at some point it'd be really cool to do there's a couple in the Alps that are like, that are super long. There's somewhere like people don't sleep for as long as they can and <laughs> try and win the thing. And yeah, it's, there's a bunch of different, different options. Um, they look, they look pretty fun for sure.
1: Yeah. It seems like, I mean, there's, there's so many different distances though that these cover. I mean, if you look at like the great divide, sure. Like, yeah, it's going to take, it's gonna take a normal person a month to ride that, you know, 3000 miles or so. Um, but, around me, there's, there's a lot of these like 300 ish mile races that people do in a few days. So yeah, you take like a long weekend and, and knock it out. seems like it'd be fun.
0: I like the idea of just being as primitive as possible and minimalistic and seeing what you can survive on and, and make it through and being self-reliant for over that duration.
1: Yeah. I like it too. I mean, I used to do backpacking when I was a teenager and that, I mean, yeah, you got to carry everything with you, but when you're on a bike packing race, you're going to be like rolling through towns and stuff and you can, you can eat at restaurants and you can like take a shower if you need to. I don't know. It's just, it seems, seems like it'd be a lot of fun. And the gear now is just so good that like you said, you can be, you can be pretty minimal. I mean, you could just, you just wear your fanny pack basically. Right. And then just like <laughs> coast from town to town, fill up and, uh, yeah, get back out there. So one of the, um, things that is sort of grinding my gears and these are like two, gen- I got two, actually, these are two general things that, that kind of coincide with mountain biking. I mean, the first one is health insurance and, this is something that, like, I get riled up about all the time because I have to buy my own health insurance, like I'm sure you guys do too. And, man, it's just so expensive here in the U.S. anyway. And it's interesting because we had a good discussion with Cam McCall, the professional free ride mountain biker, about this. And for someone like him who makes their living off of biking and doing, like, pretty dangerous things, it's a real challenge. And it's something that's, like, not not easily addressable, but we are seeing there's this new product called Spot uh, that's like this insurance that you can buy that will cover injuries and things due to mountain biking uh, that we wrote about a little while ago. It seemed like a lot of people were stoked about this concept of, you know, paying 20 bucks a month and then having it cover, you know, in case you get in a, a bike crash. Is that something you guys worry about? Do you worry about health insurance as a mountain biker?
0: Yeah. Definitely. Um, I am personally pretty lucky to be covered by the VA for most of my expenses. Oh, nice. But yeah, with my fiance, I mean, she's in the same boat to where she's stuck fishing for a decent health insurance policy and, you know, paying, I don't know, 20 bucks a month or something like that for a health insurance policy that will cover you after you pay $5,000 cash (laughs) for a procedure. So it's like... If you get hurt, you know, break your arm, you're going to have to exceed $5,000 before they chip in.
1: Yeah, easily.
0: Yeah. And just had a, a buddy move out of Colorado because he broke his same arm twice within a month. And, um, you know, he's worked at a bike shop and didn't really have great health insurance. And so, yeah, now he's he's got to move out of here, get back on his feet with some help from his family. And yeah, yeah, it's a super bummer. So I'm sure there's a lot of people in that position that would appreciate, you know, 20 bucks for, you know, I I think the majority of people who are going to buy something like spot are already pretty healthy people. You know, if you're out mountain biking regularly chances are you're physically healthy, you're eating well and injuries are largely the only thing that most people are going to have to worry about.
1: Yeah. It's just crazy to me. I mean, I guess the thing that's the most frustrating is just how much stuff costs and, and who knows why that is. Um, you know, you could probably debate that, but that's the hardest part is you don't know what something's going to cost. You know, I mean, you get bit by a snake um, <laughs> and, and you're looking at like $100,000 in, in anti-venin and it doesn't it doesn't make any sense that, that stuff should be that expensive. And, and if you're not covered, then that's really tough. Even if you had that $20 a month thing, you're going to be in big trouble if you get bit by a snake, not to, not to scare anybody, but
2: (laughs) yeah, that's a lot of money for sure. Yeah. If if I lived in the U.S., I would definitely take advantage of that program. I didn't, when I lived there, I didn't, I never had health insurance, couldn't afford it. Yeah. And if something like that was available, I, I definitely would have taken advantage of it here. So,
1: yep. And, and we'll just, I'll just throw it out there. Injuries in general suck really bad that that would grind my gears if, if I was, um, injured and recovering. We've done a lot of stories actually recently about people who have been injured and and sort of the recovery process. I know a lot of our listeners probably are currently recovering from an injury or just got back from an injury and yeah, that can be a really frustrating thing that it can be tough to deal with like physically and mentally, but it's it's part of mountain biking and so I guess I guess we got to take the good with the bad for sure.
2: Yeah, it's part of the game unfortunately.
1: Yep. So one other Thing that you know i don't know i feel like you get a group of, of working adults together and sooner or later the conversation is going to turn to traffic and driving <laughs> and commuting and all that stuff and fortunately i don't i don't have a bad commute you guys don't either you work from home so uh you don't you don't deal with traffic too much but man the times that we do drive to trails you know leah coaches little bellas which is a a bike program for like elementary age girls to sort of get oriented with mountain biking. Um, she, she coaches this once a week and the place where they have the rides is it's in the Atlanta area, but it's 46 miles away from our house. Uh, wow. Yeah. I, I didn't realize this. Like we were driving over there this weekend and punched it into ways and I was like, is really 46 miles to this trail that's <laughs> yep. you know still within the Atlanta area. I mean, we live like sort of downtown. I mean, I'm not even talking about like going from the south side to the north side. This is like kind of going from the eastern middle to, you know, the north and that's just crazy that we would have to have to drive that far and wow. Yeah, so that is a little frustrating that there aren't more trails. I I know a lot of people are in the same boat and this is something that we are seeing it being addressed, more trails being built close to where people live and more of these skills areas. um, Because, you know, I mean, a lot of places there just isn't room to build trails, but it's just nice to have some options where you don't have to get in the car and, and get all frustrated just to go, just go mountain biking and blow off some steam. For sure. Yeah imba's uh more trails
2: close to home initiative is pretty sweet
0: yeah i would agree i mean even i live in golden like right on you know within riding distance of several trail networks but still at the same time there's probably five or six popular networks around here mm-hmm. if you ride those all year round it's like when summer comes and trails higher up dry out like you want to mm-hmm. get the hell out and ride some different stuff like stop going crazy and you know and um yeah, same. It's like hop on I seventy here, and you're you're spending hours in uh, traffic just to get somewhere. And
1: yeah, well, is it is the summer I seventy traffic? I mean, it's I seventy is notorious in the winter for being bad. Everybody's going up to ski for the weekend. Is it that way? Nice summer weekends, like people are getting up to go biking.
0: It's not as bad as winter, but it's still pretty bad. And not everybody's mountain biking. There's a, a lot more bikes on the freeway or I hope not, but a lot more cars with bikes on the freeway. Mm-hmm. But uh, most people are just going up to, you know, maybe visit the resort, see a band, go hiking. You know, people want to hike or climb 14 or so mm-hmm. in general, there's a lot of traffic still on I-70 on, uh, even during the summer, it's just the weather element is removed. So there's, it's
1: not quite as messy, <laughs> right? So Matt, I know one of the things you're getting into recently here is gravel riding and you actually got a new gravel bike, right? You getting stoked to get out on the gravel roads with that?
0: Yeah, a bit more. So I had a road bike before and I like those bikes for training, really. Like they're a good training tool. They're a good way to get fit. They're a good way to prepare for mountain biking. But road riding is also very scary and deadly. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean... Personally, in line with the trends of the bike industry, ended up selling my road bike a few weeks ago and got a gravel bike. So really, I'm thinking it's just going to open up possibilities for me, Um, spend more time on dirt, away from cars. Yeah, it's just more versatile. Yeah, anything that you can take on, you know, it's a gravel or a multi-surface, all-road bike, whatever you want to call it. But it, it opens up possibilities And yeah, I found it's like, it's actually pretty fun on the right type of single track. And that's not a lot of rocks, not a lot of roots, pretty flat, (laughs) uh, but you can pick up Uh, some trails. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So that's what those are for. Right. Yeah. I found the bike for them,
0: but yeah, it, it can be a lot more fun and just a way to pound out miles, pick up fitness, spend more time outside on dirt, and away from cars, so I think it's a good thing.
2: Does that work better with the the snow in your area as well?
0: Yes, I'm thinking it will. As long as I've got all the cold weather riding gear, because before, like even when it was wet, I wouldn't want to take my road bike out because like there's no tread on the tires. There's just the compound, and yeah, if you hit some ice or you know a slick part in the road, things are going to get sketchy. So with this, usually those flat trails dry out pretty quickly gravel roads dry out pretty quickly. should help out.
1: Yeah. Well, gravel bikes and gravel riding has been sort of trending over the last few years. And I have to admit, admit, initially I didn't really get it. Like I didn't understand why you would need this bike that, you know, you could ride your mountain bike on the same stuff, but, you know, reading more articles and like researching it a bit more and actually one of Greg Heil's articles, uh, I think it was a couple months ago that we published um, about a ride that he did in Wisconsin on a gravel bike. Really kind of opened my eyes to that. And yeah, this ties to the not liking to drive to trails. I mean, with a gravel bike, you your radius suddenly expands from you know your house. So you go out on the gravel bike, ride some roads, get out of town a little bit, and then jump onto the single track and have kind of an adventure and then get back. And so... Yeah, I'm looking at a gravel bike for myself too for that reason. Because I think yeah, it just it really just expands where you can go with a bike and and not have to get in the car, which is pretty appealing to me.
0: Yeah, I I think it's about having the right tool for the job too. Um I mean you can do it all on a mountain bike, but then it's like riding a flow trail on a downhill bike. You know, it's ends up being too much bike, like you gotta go really slow, it's hard to pedal. With a gravel bike, your average mile per hour, your average speed is going to be up. You can just hammer more.
1: So Yeah. Well, cool. This has been a fun discussion. We've covered a lot of ground here, and we'd we'd like to hear what's grinding our listeners' gears and stoking their spokes. So as always, you can leave us a voicemail, 800-815-6820, or you can send us an email, info at singletracks.com, or... Post on the Singletracks forums. We'd love to hear what's got you stoked about mountain biking and what's frustrating you right now. So I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.